Hello, and welcome to the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast. This is John Goodwin, your host. This podcast is dedicated to the aspiring writer and artist, and will provide inspiration and tips from top professionals in the field. If you've been listening to this podcast or are new to it, I thank you very much. I would also appreciate if you take a moment to follow the Writers and Illustrators of the Future podcast on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. Today's guest is Craig Allison, pretty much a household name, or I should say an office hold name here. The number of mega fans he has at Galaxy Press is amazing. I think it was Claude Sandoz who introduced us all to Joe Bishop and the merry band of pirates and the magnificent Skippy in the Expeditionary Force series, and it caught on like wildfire. The more in that series in a few minutes. Craig used to create financial reports by day and wrote fiction at nights and on weekends. He finally independently published three novels on Amazon. Within six months of his first ebook release, he was able to quit his day job and pursue a full-time writing career. And it is about that I'm very excited to welcome Craig Allenson. Hello, Craig. Hello, how are you doing? Great, I'm so, as you saw already with um, several of our staff coming up to say hello to you before we got started here, you're definitely a household hero here at Galaxy Press. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. It's still, it's still weird to hear that. Yeah, but it, it's great. Cause I mean, we're, we're all about books here at Galaxy Press. So when you find something that just so appeals to people here, it's just, it's great to see that, you know, and have you just so congenial to be able to talk to everybody and just being so accessible is, is really awesome. Thank you. So um, you said you created Expeditionary Force as a reaction to the quote, plucky band of soldiers with rifles defeat an alien invasion, unquote, trope. And uh, these stories are way more fun. So a little bit about like um, how you came to create the Expeditionary Force in this whole series. And then we'll get back into your history, but I'm just, because that, it's, it's so interesting. Yeah, so the movie Independence Day came out and that was, you know, a couple of fighter pilots and a guy with a laptop defeat an alien invasion. And then Battle Los Angeles came out and it was a squad of Marines defeat an alien invasion, you know, equipped with their M4 rifles. And I was thinking, <laughs> that is never going to happen. Any species that could cross the stars to come here would have technology beyond our comprehension. And their ships could just set up an orbit and nuke us from orbit, and we would have no chance to do anything. So I basically said the only way humanity could survive an alien invasion is if we had help from outside. And in my book, the, the help is an ancient artificial intelligence from a long gone civilization who helps the humans with a leg up on technology. You had mentioned the book Battlefield Earth. Yeah. That that's a different take on it, where the aliens invade, initially take over Earth, and we're defeated. But then we have outside help from them. Their own infighting, backstabbing, and internal politics allows the humans on Earth right, to take over again. Mm -hmm. And in, in the case of the battlefield Earth, the alien invasion here was a commercial venture. They wanted to make money. So all the humans had to do is make it not worth hanging onto our planet for, for the mining concession, right? That's mm -hmm. a, but it, also we had to have outside help, right? There's no That's way right. that humans down here with rifles could defeat an alien invasion. So that, that was my, my reason for, you know, writing these books. And I said, okay, well, well, how could we survive one? It would have to be an alien, you know, help. 
and sort of kind of grew from there. Which was amazing. And it was just, it was great how you did that too, because it took it, I mean, as, I mean, I definitely have to suspend any disbelief. I mean, I've got to do that from, from the outset, but given that initial suspension, what you did there was all plausible. Given the absolute outrageousness of it, it became plausible to what was done. Yeah, I, I started off, the books have a lot of humor in them, but I didn't start the story off with a lot of humor. I wanted to tell a kind of a serious story with, with humor elements in it. Mm -hmm. And I was inspired partly by a memoir I read, and I, I can't find it. It was a guy who was an officer in either the Bulgarian or Romanian army in World War II. And they were allied with, with the Nazis and they invaded mm -hmm. the Soviet Union. And at one point, this guy realized I'm fighting on the wrong side. And he said, but there's nothing I can do about it. My family back home will get murdered. I'm probably not gonna survive the war. He ended up surviving the war, but he said, we're fighting on the wrong side and there's nothing I can do about it. And that was, my main character, Joe, goes off world, all gung-ho to fight the aliens. And then he realizes the aliens who are our allies are actually the bad guys. And, right. and what do you do? You're stuck 2,000 light years away from home at the end of a long supply line. And you have no way to get home, no way to get food. It's a desperate situation. And then, you know, th then he meets this, this friend that's artificial intelligence. But yeah. and there's no way we would have survived without outside help. Yeah, absolutely. So that was good. And then from there you took it and it just, it gave, became a, a life of its own there. And thus was born Skippy the Magnificent and yes. the man, the merry band of pirates. And I got to say, I'm not going to say anything else beyond this. Number 14 of your series just came out. And so I quickly read through it when I found out that when we got this, this date for this interview and, um, when I got to that last page, I went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. That was just like, that was just such a major OMG moment. Anybody that's been following along with this thing, quickly catch up because um, it's one of those like a serious, oh, my God. I had, that was such a shocker come from beyond left, from the left star system, you know. <laughs> it was like, I was, that was seriously impressive. Thank you. It, it's where the books have been leading up. So in sure. each book, or in some cases, I'll write two or three books on the same storyline. It takes three books to wrap up that storyline. And then they go on to the next crisis. Mm -hmm. I have to keep ramping up the, the problem that they're faced with. First, they're faced with this, and then they're faced with a bigger problem. And the problem that they solved in the first book is now, eh, we can take care of them anytime. It has to keep ramping up the stakes. And I really have, I have a tough job to do in the last book that I need to, in a satisfying way, wrap up all these threads I've had mm -hmm. for 14 books plus the two spinoff books, tie it all together, answer questions in a satisfying way. I, I don't want to leave people hanging on. No, that makes sense. Yeah. You know, it made sense what, you know, after I saw that and all of a sudden it just like, you know, gobsmack type thing. You know, it was obvious after the fact what it was, but up to that point, I wasn't thinking like that. Yeah, it is. What is the, the only problem they haven't solved yet? And that's it. So, yeah, yes. that's good. All right. The book really will be the final book. 
I did a Reddit Ask Me Anything a couple of days ago uh-huh. and said, you know, is this really the last book? It's the last book I intend to write in the series. It will complete the story that I developed when I wrote the first book. So I have no intentions to write anything beyond this. I will be writing a novella about the early days of Captain Scarandum, the the sketchy beetle, um, you know, how he became part of the ethics and compliance office and, you know, became the the sketchy guy we, we know and love. Yeah. But I also know too, which we'll get into a bit later, your um, the other half of your team telling you, you know, you know, well, who's the one to decide that fifteen is the end? I mean, it's your story, it's your book, you know. Just like you said, what was it? The, the, you got a trilogy, and you said, you know, it's a trilogy. I said it's a trilogy. She said, and she just at the breakfast table thoroughly dealt with <laughs> with that. <laughs> yes, I wrote a I wrote a fantasy trilogy, like Lord of the Rings type thing. And she's reading, she's beta reading the last, the final book, the third book. And she looks up and says, you son of a bitch. <laughs> <laughs> but I said, honey, I, it's a trilogy. I didn't intend to write anymore. And like I said, she you know, reminded me, it's my book. I can do whatever I want. And she yeah. does want more in that story about Corin Bladewell. And she wants me to write it, but I don't know when in my schedule I will have time to write it. I have an outline. I just, my schedule is so packed between now and like the middle of 2025, I think, that I don't, I don't know when I'm going to write anything else. Well, there you go. That's in her court. Yes. <laughs> I'm starting a new series that is urban or contemporary fantasy. I don't yeah. I don't know why they have those labels. It's a wizard in mod- and on modern day Earth. So, you know, it's it's recognizable Earth except with magical elements in it. Although in the beginning, there is no magic because our world has been separated from the world of magic and it's coming back in. But that's the series I'm going to be writing after Columbus Day. And the first book in that series called Convergence comes out in August. So I'm launching this new series before I wrap up Expeditionary Force. I got it. Yeah. All right. So, I mean, this is really cool. We set the stage here so people know that you're amazingly prolific. So now you started off and you were writing accountancy. Yeah. Type I, I, stuff. I was writing uh, software code to generate financial reports. Right. So, oh, so you're writing code. It wasn't you're writing, you weren't writing financial reports, you're writing code to generate. Yeah, because- yeah, because it, it was basically the same thing we're doing month after month, and that sort of thing you can automate. So I started, you know, writing VBA code and then porting it over to SQL and C plus um, plus. Yeah, I was, a, I was, a, I wrote code. Okay, good. So now I've got a series of questions that worked out because I went through on doing my my homework on who or what is Craig Allenson besides an amazing author. So you publish three or more hundred thousand. Uh, word books a year. And I already mentioned to you on our earlier back and forth that, uh, you know, Owen Hubbard also was writing like 100,000 words a month during his heyday in Battlefield Earth, which you mentioned. Um, he wrote that in eight months. That was 480,000 words. Um, and uh, so you're like amazingly prolific. So how do you do that? How do you handle that? Plus, you also got multiple storylines running through in your in your cranium. 
Yeah, I, I people ask me, I don't know how I do it because I don't know how how I would not do that. It just I can't imagine writing a hundred thousand words in a month. I basically write anywhere between twelve and sixteen thousand words a week. Mm-hmm. And, and sometimes that's sometimes that flies by and I blow through my my word count goal and I keep going. Other times, 12,000 words in a week is just a struggle. And it is, I don't know how Mr. Hubbard did it, but if I know the scene in my head when I sit down in front of the keyboard, I can do a thousand words an hour. But if I'm struggling to say, how does this scene actually go? Do they they go over here and open this door or do they go in from the top or, you know, especially an action scene, I have to have it all sketched out in my head before I sit down to type. Mm-hmm. And I do a lot of, I'll go out and mow the lawn, I'll walk the dogs, I'll take a bicycle ride, I'll do anything other than stare at a blank screen. It's just a waste of time. I, I don't develop ideas when I'm sitting at the computer. That's when I type the ideas that are already in my head. Right. And that, that's, that just works for me. I, I work, you know, I, I take about four weeks a year off for vacation. But other than that, I'm writing. And my wife knows that on days when I'm not writing, I'm still working. I'm making voice notes on my phone about future scenes or storylines or books. It's just, you know, I'm self-employed and you, you, that means you never get a day off, right? Yeah. 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 Well, like I'm a publisher. I only work half days. Yes. 12, hour, 12 yeah. hours. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. <laughs> so, okay. So you've got your, you started as, you know, writing code have you always wanted to be a writer or how that, when did that bug first hit you? I, I, I started writing stories when I was like in high school, but just little, you know, Star Wars fan fiction, just mm-hmm. awful stuff I wouldn't even want to look at these days. And then got busy with a career. And one, one day in like, I think it was 2005 or something, we went on vacation. I was reading a sci-fi book I'd bought at the airport bookstore. And it was awful. And I told my wife, I'm going to continue this because it has to get better. And it got worse. It was the worst book I ever actually finished. And I tossed it over my shoulder and I said, if that can get published, I can get published. So she said, fine, go ahead and write something. And from 2005 until 2015 or so, wrote many books, could not get them published, could not get a publishing house or an editor or an agent interested, especially with the length, the epic length of the books. Yeah. And I was going to give up. And my wife said, why don't you try self-publishing? So it took me about three months to figure out how to format it and create an Amazon account. And I published three books on the same day. And truthfully, at the time, I was hoping to make enough money to pay back for the covers I'd bought. And then within six months, I was able to quit my job. It just, it's, it's, you know, it, it never happens. Let's put it that way. It's just, it's so unusual. So um, people are listening. They're going to, right now is when the jaws are going to drop and go <laughs> like, yeah, right. So what was, was there something that happened that ignited it or kickstarted? Like what was it? Because to come from absolutely obscurity to being able to quit your job in six months, there had to be something that happened that was, some kindling that like sparked that caught fire or there's some way it worked or something. I, I, I just, I think part of it is luck. I mean, I published three books in the same day. One was a 
young adult sci-fi. One was this, the first book in this fantasy trilogy about this young wizard. And then there was Columbus Day, Expeditionary Force book one. I really thought, and I told my wife this, that if any of my books got any success, it would be the fantasy book about the young wizard. I just thought Columbus Day was so different from any other books out there. There was a reason people weren't writing books like that. And therefore it was not, it was gonna get maybe a weird little niche audience of a dozen people, and that would be the end of it. And I'd be writing these books for a tiny, tiny audience. And it just took off. I think part of it is the humor. And part of it is that it is different. There's a, there's a lot of military science fiction out there that is, you know, desperate, doomed band of mercenaries fighting a battle. I'm like, well, if, if it's a doomed band of mercenaries, why would you sign up for that outfit, right? <laughs> what, what's their recruiting pitch, you know? <laughs> so there's a lot of books like that and a lot of books that were traditional military sci-fi, you know, Black Fleet, uh, Lost Fleet. And I was like, I, I love those books. I don't want to write something that's like somebody else wrote because I could not write those stories as well as the authors of those book series. Right. So I wanted to write something different. I think, I think I just got lucky that the books I like to read and write, other people also like them. Because I write whatever I feel like writing. I don't right. try to write to mark or anything like that. I just got lucky, I think. I get it. Did you do, because normally you have to have some type of, a, even if it's just like a, with, with KDP, with Kindlepreneur, because that's what you used? Yes. Yeah, so normally there's something that you have to do that Amazon will flag it as something that's going to promote. You know, it's, it has to have some type of a benchmark or some type of maybe you, did you put some money behind it to promote it, to get it? I, I did. So I went into this with the idea of it being a business. It wasn't mm -hmm. a hobby. Right. So the very first month, this is January, 2016. I published it on January 11th. So it's kind of a half a month. I had a advertising budget of $300 that month. And I didn't spend anywhere near there. I just didn't know how to get clicks and all that. But the book took off and the first month I made $409 and 11 cents. And the <laughs> next month was like $3,500 and my advertising budget had gone up to 500 that month. But again, I didn't spend any of it. And it just, I think Amazon just saw it's popular and their algorithm started promoting it. Now, of course, you know, you know, their algorithms change all the time. They've right. changed radically since then. And the way that advertising works on AMS is completely different than it was back then. So I, I don't know what works now. I happen to hit it at the right time. If the ads had been different back then, I would have done something different. But regardless, right. the books just organically took off. Word of mouth. Yeah, well, definitely word of mouth hit it here at the office. You know, that's good on that. It's just that I try to provide, like I said, on this podcast, here's some tips that people can do. And so obviously, if you write a best-selling book, it's going to be a bestseller, but that's easy to say after the fact, yes. you know, so in terms of what you did that somebody could actually take from this, from this interview is you didn't write to market. You wrote what you thought would be a great story that you want, that you had to tell that you were telling. 
Yes. Now, the one thing I did to market, though, was the genre I chose. I chose military science fiction because the number one audience for voracious readers is romance, right? People who sure. read romance will read three or four books a month. Military sci-fi, they tend to read one or two books a month. If you're going in, you don't want to choose a genre where your reader buys one book a year because right. the odds are they're not going to buy your book. But if they're buying 12 or 14, 24 books a year, it's better that the odds are that they're going to choose one of your books. So I did go into military sci-fi for that reason, but the books are so different from other military sci-fi out there. I really did not write it to market at all. I, right. I just got lucky that it caught. And my, a lot of my audience does not read other military sci-fi, especially my women fans. They don't read other military sci-fi. It's, it's too, you know, it, it's, there's, it's not funny. It's, it's blood and gut stuff. It's, it's focused over towards a guy audience. Right. But I have a lot of women fans, which is very unusual for that genre. Yeah, we definitely have that here. But it's interesting you say that because that's one of the um, most popular essays that uh, Mr. Hubbard wrote, which is in this, on our free online workshop that we have for the writers of the future, is um, an essay he wrote called The Manuscript Factory, where he went through and he analyzed, because he wrote uh, military fiction, he wrote science fiction, he wrote fantasy, he wrote westerns, he wrote adventure, all these different genres that he wrote in, and he analyzed it, what, you know, what was the popularity of where he could where he could actually sell it and what was he being paid per word you know writing these different things and so he just zeroed in like with similar to what you're saying now that you do and then he just would like crank it out because he he was able to sell more of his of his stories that way yeah. and um because he sometimes would have like three stories under different pen names in the same magazine you know, because he just he ran, he, ran, he ran out of magazines to sell for. So he had to change. He had 15 different pen names he wrote under. Wow. But he, but he zeroed in on which were the genres that he could sell the most product to. And then he specialized in that. So it's not dissimilar. And that's one of the most popular essays that uh, uh, Rise to Future, you know, um, people actually enjoy. Because it, it's like I said, it's similar to what you're talking about there. You analyze it, which is obviously that's your your pre-life geekdom there kicking in, yeah. you know, <laughs> writing code and like, okay, get here's, let's get, get it down here. Okay. That, this is, this is the right area to hit. And then he went for that. Did you, do you know of, of Mary Robinette Kowal? Sure. She writes, okay. She, she writes the Lady Astronaut series. She in a podcast mentioned that she was writing a fantasy and she was writing science fiction short stories. And her agent said, look, you're winning awards for your science fiction short stories. Why don't you try writing science fiction? And her career took off. She wrote the Lady Astronaut series. And I, I like her other stuff also, but the Lady Astronaut series is her strength. It's She was writing in fantasy and she switched to writing long form sci-fi. Um, yeah. So I, I one of my influences, Michael Anderley from the 20 books to sure. take. So his, his philosophy, which I think is great, great writers out there, is don't try to write a bestseller because it's like a basketball player in high school says, well, I'm going to go to the NBA. Look, the odds are you won't. So Michael says, don't try to write a bestseller. Try to write three or four good selling books a year. Have a back catalog and you can make a good income from that. Mm -hmm. I have sort of blended writing bestselling books but I released two or three of them a year. 
I don't release just one or one every two years. I, I write at a you know 20 to 50K Michael Enderley pace. Mm -hmm. I also, my books tend to be longer too. They're like 180 to 200,000 words. And I think his books tend to be like 110 or 120. Not um, even. I mean, I've, I've listened to several of his audiobooks yeah. and because I had him and his wife, Judith, who handles, their, yeah. that's the team there as well. Yeah. I've had them, all, them both on the podcast as well. And uh, that's... Um, yeah, yours is definitely much longer than his, you know, and uh, with, with his, I mean, it's, it's also, it's not dissimilar to what you've done with, with your trope, what he's done with his, with the, the vampire. It's like, who cares about more vampire? But then he, what he did with is like, oh my gosh, it is yeah. so much fun, you know, with her Christian Louboutin and Oliver, you yeah. know, stuff like that. But she's a total, the most foul mouth person. And then you've got, <laughs> you know, <laughs> <laughs> and you've got your storyline there, which is you've got the basic trope, but all of a sudden it just it veers, you know, 30 degrees askew. And all of a sudden it's just such a fun storyline to follow. And that's what makes it interesting because you, you expect one thing and it's totally different. Yeah. 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 Michael gave me some good advice also. Um, I have a spinoff series from the main Expeditionary Force series called The Mavericks. Yeah, I read one of those. One, yeah. At one point, I was considering co-writing Mavericks. And Michael said, look, you know, I do a lot of co-writing. You have to be very careful, especially with me, with my humor, that a co-writer would have the same voice. And I talked to him later and I said, you know what, I'm just going to somehow I'm going to fit these into my schedule and get these spinoff books out and write them myself. And that was that was great advice, because if I'd simply written an outline and thrown it over the fence on the writer, it would not have worked and would have deleted no. it. Yeah. You've got a very unique sense of humor in that stuff. And it's one of those data, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And it's yes. definitely not broke. Yes. Yeah. So that's great. So then, um, so on this part here, the, I guess the key takeaway is that, like I said, don't go for writing a bestseller, but write your story. And you, you went into an area that you thought you'd have a better chance at, uh, getting picked up because you went for an audience that was a, that were heavy monster readers. So yeah. you have a good chance if something clicked that you got people that would be more inclined to spend their hard earned dollars to get your books. Yes. Good. Um, I gotta say too, you, you scored mega with, with RC Bray. Oh my gosh. Yes. Oh my gosh. You know, I've got, um, I mean, I, I do a lot with audiobooks too. Uh, and it's just, what what um, Podium did, and I, I'll be re I'm interviewing Scott Dickey as well in, in a couple of weeks, yeah. um, who's the CEO of Podium. But um, what R.C. Bray did, his his voice is just perfect for your books. He he is not a narrator. He's a voice actor. Yeah, a narrator will read the book to you like it's story time when you're in kindergarten. Yeah. Bob, sorry. RC, um, he <laughs> will act it out. I was concerned before I met him and before Columbus Day came out that a narrator would have a difficult time with the rapid fire dialogue. Mm -hmm. Those could be back and forth, back and forth, because they're interrupting each other and talking over each other. And Bob is just a genius at it. I was listening to a part of Book 14 match game yesterday, in fact, while I was mowing the lawn. And I was like, oh my God, Bob just nailed this scene. It's exactly what I had in my head. And now, of course, now after, after like the second book, I think, when I write, I hear Bob's voice in my head. 
<laughs> there are times that I will change the dialogue as I'm like, the way Bob said it, would it be even funnier? So I'm going to change the line here and extend it. And then Bob's going to pause and it's just going to be hilarious. And he does a great job though with, you know, he write, does a lot of um, sci-fi. He started off doing a lot of like uh, post-apocalypse stuff, zombie stuff, mm -hmm. not funny at all. And he is, he's dramatic with not being, without being overly dramatic. I mean, when he does a, there's a, there's a zombie sci-fi series called Arisen, and it is just tough, tough as gut soldiers. And the way he does it is, this is just the way it is. He's not overwrought when he narrates it. It's just, it's just like you're there. It's fantastic. Yeah, no, he's just- Bob, Bob's, been to a, Bob's a friend of ours now. He's been to our house here, so yeah. Yeah, I see him back there. <laughs> I got his signed copy of the Martian audiobook and his, his coffee mug and all that, yeah, so. Okay, good. So um, yeah, anyway, so I love audiobooks. Normally because of my schedule, I have to, uh, listen to the audiobooks to you know where you have 10 minutes here 15 minutes there oh. and that's one thing good about your storytelling too i have trouble just based on my schedule being able to consume a long period of listening to an audiobook mm -hmm. and so it's easy to get lost with your storytelling because it's it's such a a fun story and it's not so complex that you know you get lost i'm able to start stop start stop and just keep and just pick it up and just keep going with it, which I really, really appreciate about your stories too. Great, thank you. Yeah. Now getting into your self-published. And so you've got self-publishing, you've got indie publishing, and I separate those two, even though some people like to combine them, but there's a lot more indie presses these days and yeah. then there's traditional publishing. So a little bit more about what you experienced trying to go traditional and then bailing on that and then going to uh, self and not doing the indie line. So I, I did, I did submit to some editors and, you know, had some family friends who knew an editor or a publishing house or an agent or something and just got very nice letters. My writing was solid, which is their way of saying that <laughs> I, I found out, just got turned down and was very discouraged and said, look, you know, even if I, even if I do get published, it's going to be a print run of 300 books. It's just not going to be worth it. And my wife knows now that I would not do well with an editor telling me what to write, especially telling me, well, you got to cut all this out because the book needs to be 110,000 words. Um, and I want to write a 200,000 word book. Traditional publishers, and you know, they're, they're very successful. So they have their own business model, but they're still basing a book size on the thickness of the spine at the bookstore. They don't want to take up more, they don't want more than 110,000 words because it'll occupy too much space on the shelf and it'll cost too much to print. And I'm like, well, nobody cares about the print now. It's the ebook and the audio. And in case of audio, you want a longer book. So it's worth burning a audible credit to get it, right? Mm -hmm. An 18 hour, 20 hour book is what they call credit worthy. Whereas an eight hour audio book is not credit worthy. It's not worth you know, burning your credit on it. And I like the freedom of being able to write whatever I want, set my own schedule. And you know, I work with beta readers. I, I hired a professional development editor for this first book in this Convergence series, just as I, I you know, had to get it right the first time. But I mean, yeah, I, I, 
I enjoy the freedom of being, you know, self-published. Now, I'm really a hybrid because I'm self-published for ebooks and print, but I have a publishing contract with Podium for audio. So obviously, right. Bray and I have a joint venture company to do the audio. And then Podium is our publisher. And Podium, especially under Scott Dickey, I mean, he used to run Motor Trend. And he has been so innovative about making Podium a multimedia company. They they also optioned the uh, the TV rights to Expeditionary Force, which I can't talk about. Darn it! Um, <laughs> hopefully soon. Hopefully soon. Boy, yeah, it's just a weird place. Um, but yeah, I just I I really have a partnership with Podium now, and we have calls all the time and texting each other and. It's been it's just been a great experience. I mean, the audio, we make the majority of our money from audio. Now, part of that is, you know, I write for audio. It's a very audio friendly format. And sure. Yeah, it's just just been fantastic. But I, I would have considered going traditional if I'd gotten picked up by traditional or or a small indie press. It just didn't happen. So I lucked into being self-published and I have not turned back. On my new book series, uh, I was talking with one of the big, at the time, big four publishers. Um, and they said, you know, okay, first of all, we must have audio rights with it. That's that's a non-starter if you don't give us the audio rights. And they didn't want the first book to be more than 110,000 words. And they didn't want more than one book a year in the series. I'm like, well, that's, it's just not going to work. I mean, your, your right. business model just does not work with the pace and the scale that I want to write. And they were very nice and they're very successful what they do. It just was not a right fit for me. Right. And I, I think they're going to have to adapt eventually, but for right now, they, they, they said they're very successful. That's why they're these, you know, huge publishers. Just, it was not right for me, which is why I'm self-publishing my Convergence series with audio being done by Podium and the audio being done by R.C. Bray. Right, which yeah. is amazing. Yes, yeah. It's just as the publishers reduce, so the these you know for for many years it was a big five, and before that it was the big you know bigger number. Now it's the big four. The amount of of product they can actually pump out though is reduced. Yes, and so especially on science fiction, you know, it's just and their willingness to invest in a new name that's unknown, who wants to come out with a big fat book, it's, it's a big investment for them. So, and there used to be a lot of, a lot of that came with that package, you know, from them in terms of marketing support, that, which is reducing now as greatest costs increase of, of just cost of living in general, that, that gets reduced. One concern, because I read, obviously prepare, because I do a lot of podcasts with a lot of, a lot of authors. And so I have, my policy is I at least read one book. In your case, it was like ten um, before <laughs> before I, before I interview anybody, and it's a it's a turnoff for me when I find typos yes. in, in a book. So how have you dealt with that? Because I haven't found typos in your in your book. So what have you done? What do you, you do? Are, you are the only person who hasn't found a typo on my books. <laughs> so I have a team of when I finish a book. I run it through three or four different kinds of spell checking software and grammar checking software. 
it then goes to a team of fans who are beta readers. So they will look, in addition to typos, they'll look for continuity errors. You know, I changed the name of this character. This planet had two moons, and I mentioned it had one moon, that sort of thing. So they're very valuable like that. But of the seven, all seven of them will find the same typo. Then each of the seven will find typos the other six missed. Then as I get all the typos back and I'm correcting the manuscript, I'll find typos they all missed. I, I, I take solid, you know, you know, Neil Gaiman wrote American Gods and Coraline. Mm -hmm. He had a quote where he said, if it's, if it's a typo in your book, I'll go to a bookstore. He'll pick a random book of his off the cover, off the shelf, that's been professionally edited and copy edited and all that. He'll open it to a random page, put his finger down, and right there's a typo. <laughs> My wife and I were in a bookstore like two weeks ago, and in the blurb on the back cover of a best-selling book was a typo. <laughs> I, I don't know how you avoid that. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's... I mean, that's similar to what um, Michael Enderly, when he talks about his procedure for, you know, he has similar to what you just said there. It sounds like when I talk to him about what his procedure he goes through. Yeah, it's a, uh, it's, it's a real concern when it's the obvious. I mean, there's punctuation errors and there's typos, you know, so I'm distinguishing those things. You know, where someone, you know, sometimes there's, you know, the comma or the, the quotes and that type of thing, which is, is one, but where it's just an obvious wrong word or you're, there's like a word that didn't get edited out. So it's, you know, was, was instead of just a single was, that type of stuff I'm, what I'm referring to when I say that. Yes. Now, th that's kind of transparent in audio. Right. Which which, which is, is mostly how I appreciate the last book I did. I, I had to read it because I didn't have time to listen to the audiobook because I had one day. So <laughs> I just I blitzed through the number 14. I, like I said, I didn't see stuff there, but I was I was going really fast. But audiobooks, you don't get it, except it would be like was was, which didn't happen. Right. But and, I, and, I, and that sort of thing. Bob will not say was was. He will yeah. correct it and send me a correction back. Yeah. In my books, especially in the first couple, I have a lot of extra commas run-on sentences, grammar errors like that, that are intentional because my main character, Joe Bishop, is a scatterbrain. He doesn't think in a linear fashion, and that's just the way he talks. He talks in run-on sentences. Yeah. Even in the new books, I will have commas that I put a comma in because I want Bob to pause when he's narrating something. But I put, leave I leave it in the print edition because I want the reader to have a mental pause right there as they're reading the dialogue. I, I know it's correct. Yeah, I know it's not correct, but I mean the purpose of language is communication. I'm getting my yeah. point across. And also, my books are very different from almost any book out there I've read. I write dialogue the way people speak, so people will say "uh" and "um" and repeat themselves interrupt each other that's the way people actually speak and that's what, how i write mm -hmm. no it's it's there's just really fun and like i said you you write for audio yes which is translated amazingly well and you've got such a, a brilliant voice that's that's uh translating your books into the audiobooks which is great now on your um web page you describe the advantage of being self-published versus disadvantages so first of all let's address some of these advantages of being self-published 
and you list off several points there, but you know, the percentage of your book price, but um, there's no other telling you to change your book. So some of, of what the advantages that you've seen and that you continue to see being self-published. Okay, so I, I, no one tells me what to write. No one tells me my book needs to be shorter. Also, I control the book price. There's a lot of cases where you will see, especially a sci-fi book, and it's $12.99 for the paperback, and it's $12.99 or more for the ebook. $12.99 for, for, for an ebook of 80,000 words, whereas I sell my books for $6.99 for 200,000 words. Um, I, I, I like the ha having that pricing power. You know, I may change the prices up or down, but it's my decision, not the, you know, not the publishers. Uh, writing pace and how many times I publish per year and, and the schedule. Now, with, with Bob, sorry, R.C. Bray, I have to set a schedule with Podium ahead of time so that Bob can have it in his narration schedule. Right. And we do that like usually 18 months, two years in advance. And then I stick to that, but it's my schedule. I'll say, I'm going to write two books a year in this series and the third book over here. And I'm going to have one book come out the beginning of the summer, one the end of the summer, one at Christmas. And then we're going to do you know, that sort of cadence for the next couple of years. So Bob knows, all right, well, you know, that doesn't quite work with me because the kids are getting out of school. We're going on vacation. So let's move this a week. And then that, all that's fine. You know, he needs mm -hmm. to, he needs, Bob's got a great family. He's got to have a life there. So it's like, fine, let's, let's go ahead and, and move it there. But it's not some giant corporation in New York or Berlin telling me, well, we're going to move it six months out because we don't want you to interfere with a John Grisham book or a, you know, John Scalzi book or something. I'd, right. I do, however, when I release a book, I let my writer friends know. So I say, okay, well, you know, Dean, um, I'm releasing a book on this week. Um, you may want to think about releasing your book the week before or the week after. I, I don't want to compete with my friends. Right. Yeah. So it's just, just, just a courtesy. That's absolutely nice. Good. So then, now how much does it, make a difference that you can control the title of your of your book and the cover art mm -hmm. and all those aspects and even probably the marketing copy yes so, so i do so you mentioned you interviewed both michael and judith Anderley. yeah okay my wife handles all the business aspects i handle anything creative so i do uh the sketches for the cover art you know the concept art um, I write all the books, develop all the storylines. I do all the marketing copy. My wife does anything that is business related, right? Uh, like like Judith does for for their their operation, right? Um, yeah, I just I I have complete control of this. Anything that's creative, I have complete control of it, and it's just it's good, but it's also bad because I have no one to blame for it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's interesting because you know it was. Like uh, A.G. Riddle, that's the husband-wife team. Mm -hmm. uh, Kevin Anderson, Rebecca Mesta, they do a lot of stuff working together. Yes. Um, you know, there, there's several people I've interviewed. All of a sudden, to find out, no, it's a team. When you have, when you have um, self-publishing, it's or indie publishing, it's it's a team activity, so that you can bounce stuff off of each other and, and very distinct hats that are being worn by the respective you know, husband, wife team. Yeah. When, when the book started to take off and I was really, you know, considering making this career and then early after I quit my job, I got my wife involved because I didn't want her to feel left out. 
-hmm. If she'd had success as a writer, I wouldn't have wanted to feel left out, you know, do unto others. And I said, well, honey, could you take over doing these daily, you know, reports of how many books are sold? And then could you take over this and take over that? And gradually she's gotten to the point where she handles anything. I mean, I have no idea how much money we have or where it is. No idea. She does all the taxes, all the accounting, everything. I do the creative stuff. Right. And it works out great. She she reads the books, but she's not interested in writing anything. And she doesn't make suggestions about, you know, I would have liked to hear this or that. She's just along for the ride in that aspect, she says. But yeah, she handles everything to do with the business. I, you know, I at the end of the year I sign our taxes, but I don't know if they're right or not. <laughs> <laughs> I say she's gonna go to jail, I'm not. Um, but yeah, I it, it's great. It's great having a business partner that I completely trust. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also great that I don't have to check with her on anything creative because I want full control of that. Um, and you know, she'll ask me about a business thing here or there, but basically, you know, she takes direction from me and then she handles it from there. And I mean, if I had to hire somebody to do what she does, it would just be astronomically expensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also, like you said, being able to submit you implicitly trust. Yes. And I'm very careful to say our success because I really do feel it's something we're doing together. I really, yeah. in fact, we're going to Dragon Con this uh, September. And my wife is almost more excited to go than I am because she wants to meet all these fans who are more excited about meeting her than they are of me. Especially my women fans are like, oh, we got to meet your wife because you can't imagine how much she must suffer living at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, then hopefully we'll see because we'll, we have a, a table there. We're very much, Rise of the Future is a major part yeah, of Dragon yeah. Con. We've got... Um, our panel uh, for Rise of the Future, Illustrates the Future. We are given a, a, a free booth at the in the illustrator area for, for anybody that wants an aspiring artist to be able to see, to find out about the contest. We're, we get an extra space there in the main hall. So past winners, we invite them to come to our booth and we provide them a space so they can do book signings. Yeah, a lot of times. And then past winners, uh, they give us free passes, you know, pro badges for them to be able to get in. It's wow. um, Pat Henry, the CEO of Dragon Con, was our keynote speaker a few years ago at Writers of the Future. And just they're just such great people at Dragon Con, such great people. This is going to be our first big convention. We've been to a couple small regional cons, but Dragon yeah. Con will be our first big convention. Yeah, it's, it's an amazing, it's an amazing event. And we also attend... Well, in a few weeks, we're going to San Diego for the Comic-Con there. And then um, Salt Lake City Fanex is another huge one, similar to Dragon Con, where we get the writer's panel, the artist panel. Um, we get special consideration because we invite, there's so many winners from Utah for the contest. There's yes. a lot of, you know, with Brandon Sanderson being one of the judges, and he yes. teaches creative class at BYU. Uh, we've had David Farland, who recently passed away, also BYU, and Orson Scott Card who, even though he doesn't live in Utah anymore, they're all three major influences through BYU. So we have a lot of winners from Utah. So we also get um, a lot of consideration there because it's been so successful. So that's great. I I think you're going to really love uh, Dragon Con. It's just, I said, they're really good people. Good. And it's a very family friendly show too these days, which is, which is great. Good. So um, 
So now on um, anything else on, I guess on your cover art, you said you have control of that. So how do you do that? Do you, you sketch it out and get a professional artist to, to paint it or how's that go? So I do a museum quality sketch on a piece of paper and I throw it over the fence over right now to podium and they get one of their, they contract with an artist to do, one artist does my expeditionary force um, covers and there's a different artist, the same artist that um, Jim Butcher has for the Dresden Files. He's doing the art for my Convergence urban fantasy series. Right. Um, and it's a little back and forth, but generally it's a concept sketch. I write out what I'm looking for and I'm always amazed what the results are. They're just fantastic. Oh, that's I great. have no artistic ability. In fact, I think in the second week in July, we're going to post my concept sketch for the cover of Convergence versus the actual art. And it's just amazing <laughs> anyone was able to do anything with this horrible sketch I had. <laughs> there's a book, there's a scene in the book where we were just, I was designing patches and stickers to sell, you know, merchandise. Mm -hmm. And one was the logo of the ship, the Flying Dutchman. And it is a monkey with an eye patch and a sword on a flying banana, right? Right, right. I showed my wife the concept sketch and she says, well, what's this blob the monkey's standing on? I said, that's a banana. She says, maybe you could just eliminate that and put the words, imagine a banana here. <laughs> <laughs> but when, when in the book, when Joe's talking about his sketch for this logo for the ship, that went into the book. Okay. It's all into the book, yes. <laughs> yeah, I, I have no, no uh, talent for visual arts. Well, that's actually not a problem because your inspiration for those who do have those talents <laughs> translates very, very visually. So that's good. So, um, so that's how you get get all that for your uh, for your cover right there. So now on the disadvantage of being a self-published. Oh, okay. So you got to do all the work. My my wife says that I'm my own boss and my boss is a jerk. Um, <laughs> you know, there are times when I mean, my wife says, you know, can we go do this Wednesday? I'm like, I have to write, honey. I'm I, it's it's one of my writing days, and I, I tend to try to write if the weather's bad, um, but. You can't count on that. So I try to have two days a week when my wife and I can go do something, um, but it's a lot of work and you have to do everything. I mean, no, I develop like ad copy, but Podium hand manages all my ads for me. Now I put in the ad spend, but they work with AMS, you know, Amazon Marketing Services, on what types of ads we should which push out there. Uh, they do other social media ads like Facebook and Instagram. So they handle all that for me, mm -hmm. but I provide you know, the money for it, but they've just been fantastic because they know what to do and they keep up with what is working and what's not working because what works on AMS one month can completely change. Uh, like I listen to a lot of writer podcasts mm -hmm. and people were saying, whoa, you know, what was working for me six months ago when I launched this, I launched another book and it completely flopped because the algorithms changed. And, you know, th th there's always the question of, you know, do you do a pre-order? 
Well, I've heard that pre-orders on Amazon hurt you because the algorithm doesn't like to see big spikes in sales that drop off because if it drops off, they stop promoting it. Whereas on Audible, if it's a big spike, their algorithm says, let's keep pushing it for the next month or so. Even though and it's that, owned by Amazon. <laughs> even though it's owned by Amazon. And you know, Amazon has the 30, the legendary 30, 60, 90 that your sales will drop off after 30 days, then 60 after 90, because their algorithm steps down each 30 days on their on their self-promotion of it, which it's not in writing anywhere. That's anecdotal evidence of writers of saying, whoa, there's a pattern here. Mm -hmm. And that may be true. It may not be true. And if it was true yesterday, it might not be true tomorrow. So you, you right. just, you got to keep up with what's, you know, I, I took that course, um, self-publishing 101. And, you know, he has kept, James Blatch, he has kept updating that course because he has to. The game keeps changing. Mm -hmm. I mean, people are now saying that, you know, in some ways, self-publishing and Kindle is now pay to play where you get 70 percent back, but you have to put in a bunch of money for advertising. And I don't think that's Kindle's doing anything nefarious. I think there's so many books out there. We're all competing with each other now. Yeah, you need how do you get your your book in front of somebody's eyeballs when there's so many books and only so many eyeballs? Yeah, and 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 then you know this other guy is bidding, you know, you know, seventy five cents a click. Well, you got to bid seventy eight to get more than him, and it's like becomes a zero sum game. So yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. God bless word of mouth. Yes. <laughs> yeah, and that's that's another thing is you talked about how uh, big publishers have ramped down their marketing efforts on behalf of authors. Um, so if you're self-published, you have to do all of your own marketing. Mm -hmm. But I've heard a lot of traditionally published authors saying, yeah, I got to do it all myself. I get one little blurb here, like an ad in something. And that's all that, that the, the traditional publisher does for you because after a week, they've moved on to the next book that they're publishing. Right. And it is, it's just, how do you get people's attention these days? Yeah, no, which, which is um, you've got to know yourself the the basics of marketing because what's happening to big publishers everybody else they're sizing down you know yeah. uh, they have to they got fewer marketing teams they got fewer pr teams so they they go after the grishams and they go after the kings and stuff like that yeah. but then you've got like what possibly a new game that's happening right now which is um what sanderson just in on the uh kickstarter Kickstarters. Yeah. And so I've, I've had a few different guests. I know Kevin Anderson, who I just recently had as, as a guest and um, Martin Shoemaker, who just did a Kickstarter to help him find some of his basic things to be able to get his books out there. And obviously Brandon with this 42 million Kickstarter, which is that's outside the bell curve there a bit, <laughs> but, <laughs> just a bit, but it, it might be a, that might be a new publishing game. That's now just going to take more, you know, more hold on this thing because it's, and Michael Underley also discusses that too. And on, on the 20 books to 50 K gets into that as well as a solution. We are looking into doing a Kickstarter. Yeah. And I, I, I persuaded my wife that she's going to manage it, but with professional help. So yeah. setting up the campaign and all that, but cause I don't know, I don't have the time for it, but we would do a, a Kickstarter for not like Brandon's done where it's new content because he's offering four new books. On right. This would be if you want special editions of the books, if you want action or inaction figures, 
if you want a talking Skippy bobblehead doll, that sort of thing, that's the sort of thing we're looking at doing a sure. Kickstarter. It's very, yeah. it's very complicated. Well, right now the sourcing, getting anything right now is difficult. So yeah, yeah. yeah I, I mentioned Michael. And it was actually Dean Wesley Smith that that has that. He was talking about that. Yes. Yeah. So um, all right. So now, sometimes people might think being self-published means you're not a real author. Can you? further work to get somebody up to present time and take them out of the publishing 10, 15 years long since gone. Okay, so I could send them links to my 11 New York Times bestsellers. <laughs> yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, <laughs> it's definitely changed a lot. And I know we have, I've had some guests like, you know, Bob Silverberg, who um, he's a grandmaster of science fiction, but he's very much grew up in the 50s publishing and you know 60s and so he's um that's how he he worked and so for him ain't broke don't fix it you know i've had tom doherty as a publisher of tour mm -hmm. um, i've had um you know various traditional uh people as well as the new the new guard and um i think people need to really do your homework and just look for yourself and see but just a lot of my recent guests have been self-published and they've definitely proven that you can make it. You got, like you said, you've got to work. You gotta be willing to work, you know, and work out at what point do you quit your day job and just become transition to full-time writer and success yeah. is very much in your hands. It's not up to some other boss to say, okay, good. You know, we'll carry you through this lean period. You feel it's, it's all up to you to totally. make it happen. I don't think anyone would say that Hugh Howey is not a real writer. And he's been self-published since 2011. Yeah. Yeah. Um, even traditionally published writers, in some cases, are writing self-published books under a pen name, or they're doing some self-published things. Like, okay, John Scalzi's the big stud at Tor, right? He's mm -hmm. their big But I think his deal is that he self-publishes his audio books. I don't think audio was part of his original deal. Um, so he's partly self-published there. And he's talked about, you know, Tor has been wonderful for him. He has a great relationship and partnership with them, but he might consider some self-publishing in the future, depending on what the industry does. I mean, right. it, people need to change with the times. And no, the idea that if you're a self-published writer, you're not a real writer, is just, you know, it's, it's not 2000 anymore. It's 2022. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And really when they talked about People who say that are not aware of, you know, the real, you know, reality of what's going on because their idea of a self-published writer is somebody who paid to have a vanity press create 20 copies of their books. Yeah. So they get their friends. They're not, they're not professional writers. Right. Um, and my definition, like people say, oh, are you a real writer? If you write, you're a writer. You're a real writer. Right. I think what people are asking is, are you a professional writer? Are you making a living from it? And that is a tougher hurdle to get because so when I decided to quit my job, I decided when I decided I should persuade my wife that I should quit my job, I gave I lay out a spreadsheet. And I had a three year plan of what I was going to write, what I thought we could make from it. And the amount of money I needed to make each year to equal my salary plus benefits, like especially health, 
plus all of my, you know, social security tax and that sort of thing, what, how much money I would need to make as a writer to equal the income I had from a quote, real job. And it's been, you know, gone way past that now, but that was the calculation of what do I need to do as a writer financially to make it professionally as a writer. And, and that not having healthcare is, is a killer. I know a lot of writers who, you know, they're, they're writing part-time and they want to quit. I said, well, what do you can do about healthcare? Oh, well, my, my husband has um, healthcare. I can get it through his job or my wife has healthcare. If you've got that and you got a supportive spouse, that's fantastic. But if you're on your own, oh, that's a, that's, I mean, quitting your job, that is tough. Yeah. You know? Good. It's a big hurdle. Yes. Okay. Well, we've definitely blown through this hour and then some, okay. I just which I knew would happen. So getting back to now, um, you just came out with number 14 mm -hmm. in, um, in your series here. So just how can people find you and where do they go to find your books? Right, so uh, on Amazon, look for Craig Allenson, A-L-A-N-S-O-N. I, I chose that name because my father's name is Allen, so I'm Allen Son. That's how right. it works in real life, too. Right. Or you can go to craigallenson.com is my site for books or merchandise or whichever. Yeah. Okay, that's great. And like I said at the outset of this, if you've been following along in this series, when you get the end of volume 14, it's like it's a, such a serious, oh, my God, moment. Just and if you haven't quickly get up there so you can get there and, and have that, oh, my God, moment. Now, I, I've had the, the, a lot of my books end with, oh, my God, cliffhangers. But book 14, I think, is the granddaddy of them all. Oh, it so is. <laughs> you know. Major cliffhanger. Yeah. yeah, this one here is for sure. So anyway, this has been great. And I really appreciate this time with you. So um, again, thank you very much, Craig. And thank you for listening. Subscribe to the Writers of the Future podcast where we get your podcasts. We've also been syndicated on the United Public Radio Network where you can find these podcasts as well. Writers of the Future series can be purchased wherever books are sold in the US, Canada, the UK, Australia, and South Africa, and available everywhere via Amazon.com. Writers and Illustrators of the Future are contests created by Elwin Hubbard to provide a means for the aspiring writer and artist to be seen and acknowledged. It is free to enter and open to amateur short story writers and artists of science fiction or fantasy. Again, thank you very much, Craig. Thank you.